Amen. Good morning. My name is Ruben, and I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. So good to see so many of you uh, on this fine Sunday morning. Our sermon passage for this morning is from Isaiah chapter 6. You're welcome to turn in your Bible or grab a pew Bible in front of you. It's also printed for you in in your worship folder, and I believe it will be on the screen behind me as we read together. We're going to read the entire chapter. Uh, It's a quite familiar passage for many people. If you've been around the church for a long time, you probably are familiar with some of the things that we'll see here. Uh, So let's read together from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull, and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes. And hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terminth, or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. But the holy seed is its stump. Uh, This is uh, the word of the Lord. This is a famous passage, but it is set in a specific historical context, as is all of the Bible. So you see there in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now don't miss that, because if you blow past that phrase, you'll miss the the rest of the chapter. you'll, You'll won't understand it. The context always gives the content meaning. That's what we've been saying over and over again, and it's why we're doing what we've been doing all year, even through the summer and through the fall, all the way to the beginning of the year. We're, we're taking uh, the Old Testament chunk by chunk, starting at the very beginning of human history with the story of the first man and the first woman, making our way all the way through the Old Testament scriptures because there is a story that God is telling. There's a history, and it's only within the history that's being told here that we can understand the books and the passages and the verses of the Bible. In 722 B.C., Samaria, the capital city in the northern part of the nation of Israel, fell to the Assyrians. In 586 B.C., Jerusalem, the capital of Judah in the south, fell to the Babylonians. But for 140 years or so, Judah existed all by itself. And for the next three weeks, we're going to look at Uh, that time span of those 140 years between the fall of Samaria, which Jeff preached about last week, the fall of Judah, which we'll talk about in a few weeks coming, 140 years there in between. And we're going to do it by looking at three characters that were very important during those 140 years, beginning this morning with the prophet Isaiah, because he's familiar to most people. And in Isaiah 6, uh, 
we read at the very beginning, in the year that King Uzziah died. And that helps us to understand what God means to teach us through this particular text. During the reign of King Uzziah, Israel and Judah both uh, experienced 40 years of, really in many ways, since the time of Solomon, which you've been, you've been here long enough to, hear, to, to have heard us preach about all these things. Since Solomon, there were 40 years where the people experienced peace and prosperity like they had not since David and Solomon so many hundreds of years before. But as is often the case, their prosperity ended up creating a certain spiritual dullness. And you see it in the description of the nation that God gives to Isaiah down in verses 9 and 10. Do you see what he says? He talks about a dull heart that he describes as hearing, being ever hearing but never understanding and being ever seeing but never perceiving or hearing but never really hearing, seeing but never really seeing. And it's interesting, it's interesting these, these verses here in verses 9 and 10 are the most often quoted passages from Isaiah in the New Testament scriptures. All four gospels quote those two verses to explain the crowds that heard the words of Jesus. I mean, think of God in the flesh. Come to walk among us, to teach us, but they did not heed him. They did not listen to him. They heard the very words of God from the very mouth of God, and still they persisted in unbelief. And so the Bible writers go back here to Isaiah 6 of how the Lord describes the people and their dull hearts, their hard hearts to explain how it is that the people could have reacted to Jesus that way. And it is this metaphor from the Bible of a hard heart or a a calloused heart, which really conveys the idea of an unfeeling heart, because you know what a callous is, right? Most of us do anyway. Uh, I do play the guitar from time to time, not so much anymore, but I remember the hardest part, if you're wanting to learn the guitar, particularly the acoustic guitar, I think, is at the beginning, you know, you spend all of your time compressing the strings, and there's a sharpness to the strings, and so it, oh, it just, it's painful. It hurts, as you're trying to train your, your, you know, your, your fingers to go in the right place, and you get bloody, and they get cut, and it, it's really, really difficult because it just is really so painful at the beginning. But eventually, you do it long enough, and you know what happens, right? Everybody, we know this. You form a callus. And what is a callus? A callus is a, a just layer upon layer of dead skin. And eventually, you play long enough, and you do it you know, enough, and then it doesn't hurt anymore. In fact, you don't feel anything. Uh, there was a time, probably not now, I wouldn't try it, but there was a time where I could take a needle and jab it about a quarter of an inch into my finger and not feel a thing because they're, the tips of my fingers are just dead. And that really is the, the metaphor of, the, he says, you have, you have dull hearts, you have unfeeling hearts. And this is the person who... There may be a time where you had a reaction of some kind emotionally to spiritual things, or you've heard a bunch of sermons, whatever it might be, but, but for whatever reason, you're no longer deeply affected by any of it. There's no sorrow for sin, there's no joy in the gospel, there's just nothing. And, and because there's nothing, then there's no power for change, there's no deep repentance, there's nothing. And it's a sign that judgment is in the air. If you get caught in your sin and your response is, eh, you know, oh well. Or if you come to worship on Sundays and all it produces is a yawn of familiarity. God is bringing you into judgment. You have a hard heart. And the hardening itself is an act of judgment. And indeed, in the historical context of these verses, in 20 years from this scene, just 20 years later, God would judge Israel in the north. That's what Jeff talked about last week. By 
sending Assyria against them and sending them into the exile, kicking them out of the land of promise. And, 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 and you're left wondering, well, if that happened to Israel, what's going to happen to Judah in the south? And that's why we have the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah was a prophet writing to Judah in the south about what God had done to Israel in the north. And his message was, look what the Lord did to them. If you don't wake up, if you don't recover from your dull hearts, the same thing's going to happen to you. And in fact, it did 140 years later. And if you're here this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, the message to us is the same. Listen, look at what God did to his people. Look at what God did. Where is the church at Ephesus today? It's not there. Because dull hearts took over. And if, we're, if we do not wake up, if we don't recover from our dull hearts, then the same kind of judgment awaits even us as well. That God will come against his people, as he's done through the centuries, to wake them up and do whatever he must. So the question before us this morning is, how do you wake up? How do you recover from a dull heart? Where does, where does that nothing, how does that nothing disappear and there be spiritual energy and desire there? How do you wake up and recover from a dull heart? And the answer is you have to have an experience like Isaiah's experience here in Isaiah 6. And there are really three parts to what happens to Isaiah here. I want to just look at each of them in turn. But here, here they are. Here really are the three steps or the three things that have to happen in your life in order for you to wake up and recover from a dull heart. The first is you have to be confronted by God's holiness. Secondly, you have to be comforted by God's mercy. And then thirdly, you have to be called into God's mission. So those, those three things this morning. You have to be comforted. Isaiah was comfort, or excuse me, confronted by God's holiness. He was then comforted by God's mercy. And then lastly, he was called into God's mission. And those are the same three things that I hope have or will happen to every single one of us maybe this morning. And so let's walk through this passage together by looking at those three headings. First, first, this first point. In order to be a person, you know, in order to wake up, wake up and recover from a dull heart, you have to first be confronted by God's holiness. This is what happens to Isaiah in this passage. He's confronted by God's holiness and greatness. Look at the text, because it's the details that bring this out. Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on his throne, we're told. So he's pictured as a king with royal authority and power. He is, verse 1, high and lifted up, we're told. And those are words that describe his transcendence. Or as the old children's song goes, he's got the whole world, where? In his hands. Because he's that big. God is so big that the world would fit in the palm of his hands, and, and so much bigger even than that. Isaiah 40 says that all of the nations of the earth are like nothing before him, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers in comparison to him. So majestic, so awful, to use the old meaning of the word, that, that was he that, that his attendants, the seraphim, were told could not even look at him. They covered their faces because the brightness of his glory would have blinded them otherwise, and they covered their feet, were told, as a sign of humility and deference and respect to him. And the seraphim, we're told, are calling out to one another. And their antiphonal song, in the song, they give us the defining characteristic of God as he is pictured here. They say, verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And the threefold description of God as, as holy is very important. You have to understand a little bit about 
the, uh, the, the language of the Old Testament to, to really capture what it is that the Bible's trying to convey here. Uh, in Kings, where, where uh, they begin to talk about the construction of the temple, in English it says that they used the purest gold, but in the Hebrew it reads literally it was gold, gold. Uh, another, because, well, because the way the Hebrew language expresses a superlative is by doubling things. So in Genesis 14, we're told that, uh, that there are people who fall into great big pits. But if you read the Hebrew, right out of the Hebrew, it says they fell into the pit pits. Right? But nowhere in the Bible does it say anything uh, is ever tripled except here. Not even of God. No attribute of God is ever tripled except here when the seraphim begin to call out to one another, holy, holy, holy. And it's a way of saying this is the thing that defines God more than anything else. He is holy. So what is holiness? And God's holiness, according to the theologians and according to the Bible, is his utter incomparability. A.W. Tozer, who's a pastor and writer 60 years ago or so, he put it this way, and I really I like this. I think this is helpful. He says, forever God stands apart in light, unapproachable. He is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. Listen to this. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. The caterpillar and the archangel, though far removed from each other in the scale of created things, are both, nevertheless, one in that they are alike created. They both belong to the category of that which is not God and are separated from God by infinitude himself. So holy, holy, holy means that there is God and then there's everything else that is not God. And those are the categories we're really dealing with. And what's happening is, as Isaiah is beginning to get a glimpse of God as he really is, it's as if uh, it would be like going to the movies, going to a 3D movie, which I am morally opposed to, by the way. Not because they cost a lot of money, but because they give me a headache. So we avoid them. And I hate the glasses. Nobody looks attractive in those things. And so, um, but you go to the 3D movie, right? And everything's fuzzy. And you, you can somewhat make out what's happening on the screen, and then you put the glasses on, and the picture sharpens, and you begin to see detail and contour and so forth. That's what's happening to Isaiah. He's finally getting a glimpse of God as he really is. He's holy, holy, holy. And what happens? What happens to him? Look down in verse 4. First, we're told the foundations of the temple begin to shake. And in the Bible, this is always what happens when God shows up. The temple... Filling with smoke is the Bible's way of evoking God's coming into the room. And when God comes into the room, always the place begins to shake. Remember Israel on the foot of Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. When God descended on the mountain, what happened? The mountain began to shake. The prophet Nahum says, The Lord is a whirlwind and a storm. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt. And it's a common way of describing what happens when God shows up. The temple begins to shake. And so does Isaiah. (laughs) When he sees the Lord, he shakes. He begins to melt. Look what he says, verse 5. Woe is me. And that's a curse. I mean, Isaiah's saying, I'm in trouble. He sees God for who he really is, and his immediate response is to say, you know, I'm in big trouble. I I deserve to be punished. I deserve to, to die. He says, I'm lost. And that Hebrew word means something like to be undone or to unravel. Isaiah is saying, I, I'm, following, I'm falling apart here. 
Aldous Huxley, who was a complete pagan and atheist, yet who wrote very deeply of his own search for God and kind of the experience with what philosophers call the mysterious, or excuse me, the mysterium tremendum, this kind of generic sense of being confronted with God as a holy other. He writes about that experience. He says, there was fear, and the fear was of being overwhelmed. Listen to his words. He says, "Of of disintegrating under a pressure of a reality greater than me, He goes on, in theological language, this fear is due to the incompatibility between man's egotism and the divine purity, between man's self-aggravated separateness and the infinity of God. See, Huxley began to experience God, and he said that when that happened, what the word he used, he said he began to disintegrate. He began to disappear. It was too much for him. He had an Isaiah 6 moment, and he says there is, because there's an incompatibility with our ego, and the reality of God. And Isaiah says, woe to me, woe to me, I'm, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And that means this, it means it's the same things happening to him that Aldous Huxley describes. And let me try to explain it because it can be kind of, you know, kind of hard to wrap your head around. Let me try to explain it using an illustration of Little League All-Stars. <laughs> Thank you, Erica, for that chuckle. I'm really in mourning because for the first summer in 10 years, I don't have anybody playing All-Stars. So I've been making my way out to watch my nephew play some. Uh, but, you know, of course, an All-Star team is made up of, of all the best kids from all the teams in the league. And every kid on the All-Star team, of course, on the team that they played during rec ball season, they played shortstop and they hit third or fourth in the order. But, of course, when you get to the All-Stars, what happens is, is everybody's good. Everybody's good. Everybody's the shortstop. Right? Everybody hit third or fourth. And, and so what happens is um, somebody has to play right field and bat 10th. And from 10 years of experience, I can tell you, what happens to some of the kids is they're, being, they're used to being the best, and when they get on a team with a bunch of other kids that are better than them, they panic. They, they don't know how to deal with it. Bat them ninth, you put them in right field, they melt. Whoa, it's me. Right? And really, honestly, their parents are worse than they are. What are you doing to hit my kid 10th? And what's happening is is they're disappearing. Uh, What was too important to their sense of self is being taken away. They're they're coming up against a reality greater than their own reality. They've come up against something that that they cannot stand up to. There are kids on the team that are better than them. And they're used to being the best. And what's happening here for Isaiah is we all have things about ourselves that we're proud of, talent or good looks or grades, good grades, whatever it might be. And for Isaiah, it was his ministry. He was a prophet. He was the mouthpiece of God. And if ever there was something to be proud of, it was that. And then he was confronted with God's holiness and God's utter superlativeness. And the thing that he thought so much of about himself, he realized was, in reality, nothing. Seeing God as he really is caused him to finally see himself as he really is, not the bold speaker of the truth, prophet and savior of Israel that he thought himself to be, but a sinful mess. Verse 5, a man of unclean lips. That is, he began to see, as he began to see God clearly, he also began to see himself clearly. He saw his pride. He saw the wrong motivations that he had at times for his truth speaking. He saw where he was cowardly or maybe where he was a little too sharp and he was humbled. See, Isaiah is finally feeling his spiritual nothingness in comparison to God. He realizes he's in, when he's come up against God, everything that he thought, 
was something. He's now realizing it was absolutely nothing. And here's the question that we have to answer. And the first point, by the way, is much longer than the second and third, so don't panic if you're wondering. I'll get you to lunch, I promise. But here's the question we have to answer is, is, is this. Is, is that kind of experience, is the experience that Aldous Huxley describes that you see here in Isaiah 6, is this kind of experience normative to the Christian life? In other words, is this experience unique to Isaiah or is it what has to happen in every case to every single one of us? And I would argue that if you read the Bible carefully, you'll see that every single person in the Bible who had a genuine experience with God had an experience like this. You think of Moses at the burning bush, who when God speaks to him out of the bush, falls on his face on the ground. And Job, who at the end of all of his arguing with the Lord, has to say, I've heard of you, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Or Peter in the boat with the Lord Jesus when he finally wakes up and sees who Jesus really is and his only response is, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. A.W. Tozer again, he goes on to say, whenever God appeared to men in the Bible times, the results were always the same. An overwhelming sense of terror and dismay, a wrenching sensation of sinfulness and guilt. Conversely, he says, the self-assurance of modern Christians, the basic levity present in so many religious gatherings are evidence enough of a deep blindness of heart. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, so says Proverbs, but this healing fear is today hardly found among Christians. I think A.W. Tozer's on to something. I mean, I think... You know, my question is, does today's Christianity, or parents, as you think about your kids and what you're trying to do in their life, does today's Christianity produce Isaiah 6 moments for people? And if not, what are the implications of that? I mean, if this kind of thing is no longer normative to our religious experience, if our religion, you know, if, if, if our religion looks different than what happens in the Bible, then is our religion the religion of the Bible? And if you're here, you're not a Christian. And you, you have to meet God on his terms. That's what I have to say to you this morning. You know, and while I'd love to entertain you, while I'd love to turn the house lights down and the stage lights up and play loud music, I'm not sure that produces Isaiah 6 moments. And Ian Murray, who is a prolific Christian biographer, wrote a biography on Jonathan Edwards, and in the book he describes the spiritual condition of the church prior to the Great Awakening in New England with a simple sentence. He said, men were treated as saved who never knew they were lost. He goes on, he says, It had become assumed that men could be savingly related to Christ without any prior conviction about sin which made their salvation necessary. And the result was dullness. The church was languishing. And what sparked the revival, the greatest revival our country's ever seen, by the way, was preaching like the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. And what the preaching of Jonathan Edwards and others did was it produced Isaiah 6 experiences for people. It brought them face to face with their sin and nothingness. So much so that Steve Williams, Stephen Williams, another pastor in New England at the time, wrote about a time that Edwards came to preach to his congregation. And this is what happened. Here's his description. He said, Before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying out throughout the whole house. What shall I do to be saved? Oh, I'm going to hell. What shall I do for Christ? So that the minister was obliged to desist. Shrieks and cries were piercing and amazing. His preaching produced such an effect in people that he had to stop. 
And we read that and we think, that's, that's ridiculous, that's silly. And I admit, it makes me a little uncomfortable. A handshake and a pat on the back will do just fine, right? I don't know that I'm ready for shrieking. <laughs> However, what is undeniable is that this kind of experience is what led to the greatest revival America has ever seen, which makes me wonder if something like it should not be more common than it is. Robert Bolton writes this. I'm quoting a lot of people this morning. I apologize, but this is so helpful. He says, A man must feel himself in misery before he will go about to find a remedy. He must be sick before he will seek a physician. Be in prison before he will seek for a pardon. A sinner must be weary of his former wicked ways before he will have recourse to Jesus Christ for refreshing. He must be sensible of his spiritual poverty, beggary, and slavery under the devil before he thirsts kindly for heavenly righteousness. He must be cast down, confounded, condemned, a castaway, and lost in himself before he will look about for a savior. How do you overcome a dull heart? First thing is you have to have an experience where you're confronted by God's holiness. But be careful, that's not all. Because what also happens to Isaiah here is he's not only confronted by God's holiness, but secondly, Isaiah is comforted by God's mercy. So God is not just a holy God. He's not just a God who makes you feel bad about yourself. He's a God who has a solution. He's a God who does, who's doing something about the problem, that we stand before him with nothing and, and fall apart because everything we think we have that's something is in reality nothing before him. And, and the truth is you will only have the emotional and psychological ability to handle how bad a person you are when you're standing in front of the person who holds the solution in his right hand. And that's exactly what we see here in this text. Isaiah sees God for who he really is. And the consequence is he sees himself for who he really is. And so what does he do? You see there he begins to confess his sin. And then look what happens. We're told that an angel, one of the seraphim, take a burning coal from a fire and touch Isaiah's lips. And it is that act that changes Isaiah's whole constitution. But what is going on? Well, you have to know some of the imagery of the Bible to to know exactly what this is. The fire represents God's wrath. Because God is so good, his wrath is his unchanging insistence that sin be punished. He can't just let sin go on. God must punish sin. He would not be just if he didn't. But, But so there's fire, there's wrath. This is a picture of God's wrath coming out against sin. But we have to ask the question, where does the coal that touches Isaiah's lips come from? And we're told it comes from the altar. And the altar is where... In the temple, the sacrifices, uh, atonement was made for the people. And so the altar there brings together the two ideas of fire, which is a symbol of God's wrath and punishment against sin, but the sacrifice, which is a substitute for God's wrath, so that the worshiper can be forgiven and so that God can be both the just and the justifier of those who believe in him. Look what the angel says in verse 7. Behold, this has touched your lips... Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And so we have a picture of the saving work of God on our behalf. The word atonement means to pay the debt of Israel's sin and ours, the angel said, has been paid for. And that's why Isaiah doesn't die. At the beginning of the passage, that's what he thinks is going to happen. He says, I'm in trouble. I'm going to die. He thinks God's coming down in judgment, smoke, and darkness, and the shaking of the earth. He's done for, but... It doesn't happen the way he's told because somebody else has paid for his sin. There's atonement that has been made. 
Somebody's paid the price for his sin. But who? Even Isaiah doesn't know. There's an indication later, if you keep reading the book of Isaiah, which we just finished in in Community Bible reading not long ago. When you get to places like chapter 53, where he starts to talk about the suffering servant, you get the sense that he has an idea, but he really no clear indication. Isaiah doesn't really know who it is that's done this, but we do. Because centuries later, we have a record of a similar experience where God came down in judgment and there was darkness and the earth shook. And the fire of God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. And what the Bible says is that he was the payment for our sins. That he was the sacrifice for our atonement. That he hung there in our place. And see, the only way to wake up and to recover from a dull heart is to see God doing that kind of work for you. It's to have, if, you know, I started to think today, the people that I've seen in my life, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 40 years old, and I know that seems like, you know, but please remember when you were 39, heading towards 40, it's a little bit of a panicky moment for most people, right? You feel like, okay, this is getting serious now, I have to really start thinking about things. And so, you know, and, and at some point I've seen guys that are a little older than me, you know, the change that I've seen that has been, like, I've watched be unbelievable is somewhere where a guy, a man in his 50s or something has a heart attack or something really crazy happens and there's this like this near-death experience. And because he has to go, he goes through this near-death experience on the other side of the near-death experience, he changes the way he lives his life. It wakes him up. He thought he was going to die, but then he didn't, right? He was confronted with the reality of his mortality and then there was mercy and he, and, and he was so moved by the mercy, it floods his life with gratitude and joy. And all of a sudden, there's this new power that he didn't have before to change. He doesn't take things for granted any longer. He doesn't eat cheeseburgers anymore, you know. It's kale and spinach smoothies from now on or whatever it might be. And there's this, like, drastic change. And you think, gosh, I mean, that's, that's pretty, you know, significant. And, and, in, and in many ways, it's a picture. The only way to recover from a dull heart is to see what Isaiah saw, to know that we all stand here as people of unclean lips and far worse. And if God were to come and meet with us as we pray in these services that he would do, he should destroy us. But there's mercy. And you have to have a near-death, near-death experience like that. If you, if you haven't, chances are you're not a Christian yet. And I know that sounds harsh, but it's the reason our churches are so sleepy, so dull. If you're a nice person and God's a nice God and together you're trying to make the world a nice place, that's so sweet. But there's no power in that. There's no power in that. It will leave you with a dull heart. You have to have a near-death God coming against you in wrath and judgment and Jesus stepping in the way to take the bullet for you. And in awe of his mercy, there's a new power that comes into your life. That's how you wake up and recover from a dull heart. And so do you know that? Do you know if that God were to come today and the room was to shake, that we would be undone? Do you know, have you seen, did you, how many times did that, the verse, we, the verses, behold, 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 have you behold, have you seen and, and, and beholden Jesus upon the cross dying as your savior? How do you overcome a dull heart? You have to be confronted by God's holiness and comforted by his mercy. But let me finish with this, and this is the last thing. And lastly, you have to be called into his mission, because in reality, here's the truth, friends. 
There's no time when you're on a mission for dullness. You have to be sharp. You have to be alert. And so we have to, one of the things we have to do in light of this passage is, is we have to see that the message of Christianity for us as individuals doesn't end with God's mercy in Jesus Christ. There's also a mission that he calls us to. And if we recast our life as a mission, then we, then we find a new energy to escape the dullness that can creep in. And so there are four things. Just, this is just application stuff at the end here. Four things about what we see here in Isaiah's call that I want you to think about as you think about what it means to be called into his mission. And the first is to be called into God's mission means your job is to represent him wherever he sends you. In Isaiah 6, God commissions the prophet to his people. He says, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? And that's the job of a prophet. A prophet was God's representative to God's people. He spoke God's words. If somebody wanted to meet with God or to know what God thought of something, they would come to the prophet. And so for us, like Isaiah, to live in our culture prophetically means that our job is to represent him wherever he sends us. Secondly, to be called into God's mission means... To be ready to obey. Do you see Isaiah's response? Whom shall I go? Whom, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And what's Isaiah's response? Here I am. Send me. And my wife has our children trained so that if she ever calls them from across the house, their immediate response is to be, Coming, mommy. Although we have teenagers now, so it's not mommy. It's coming. Right? Or whatever, in a deeper voice with not quite the tilt. Right? Now, why is it so important? She wants them to be responsive to her voice whenever it comes and to be ready to obey her. Because that's what good parents train their children to do. And that's Isaiah's here I am. He's ready. He is ready to obey. He hears the call and he bounces to attention. Here I am, Lord. Send me. And so to be called into his mission means to be ready. To be ready to obey. Third, to be called into God's mission means... That no shame, please don't miss this, that no shame or failure can derail you. Look, what's Isaiah's confession again? I'm a man of unclean lips. And where does the seraphim touch Isaiah with the coal? He puts the coal to his lips. Do you know what that means? That means Isaiah's unclean lips are transformed into the mouthpiece of God. Is that not awesome? It is for me. Okay, you're looking at me like that. I'm telling you, that's awesome. Because here's what it means. Uh, The people I've met along the way with the most powerful ministries are those that have experienced deep shame and failure and then the coal touched them and in that place of brokenness and it turned their shame into ministry. But lastly, because I need to be done, to be called into God's mission means your job is to represent him wherever he sends you, it means you're ready to obey. It means no shame or failure can derail you. But lastly, it means that we, that we must count the cost of our ministry. And that's the reason for the second half of Isaiah 6. God's showing Isaiah what his ministry as a prophet will be like. And you need to know, if you don't know this already, that every preacher, when he begins his career in preaching, imagines crowds flocking to hear the profound truths that he will proclaim. We preachers imagine the altars of our churches crowded with the penitent at the end of our sermons. No preacher imagines a post like the post God gives Isaiah. Go, God says, but please understand, nobody's going to listen to you. Your church is going to be empty. In fact, they're going to hate you. And you can, if you read it, you can feel Isaiah's heart begin to sink. So down in verse 11, he says, well, how, how long, Lord? <laughs> because, of course, if you get a hard assignment, at least there's the hope that it will be a short assignment. 
And then comes God's answer, until the city is a wasteland and everything is destroyed and all that's left is a smoldering stump. And God would say to us, go. One of my seminary professors, Steve Brown, has an illustration that explains very well what this feels like. He's talking to pastors primarily, but I think it applies to most of us. He says, there are times when I feel like I'm standing on the high edge of a sheer cliff that people frequently approach. Be careful, I tell them. It's a long way down, and coming to a stop at the bottom will be quite unpleasant. And they look at me, and sometimes they even thank me. And then they jump. But I keep at it. Hey, I say to the next group who approached the cliff, not too long ago I saw people go off that cliff, and if you'll bend over and look, you'll see the bloody mess they made. And like everybody else, they seem grateful for my concern. They may even say something about my compassion and wisdom. And then they jump. It happens again and again, he says. Frankly, I'm tired of it. In fact, I've given up standing by the stupid cliff. I'm tired of being people's mother. I'm tired of talking to people who don't want to listen. This is just another way of saying, when I determined to leave my position by the cliff, to my horror and surprise, I realize I've jumped. We live in a world that is full of people with hard hearts towards spiritual truths. And if you dare to speak prophetically into the culture. And I don't have to rehash the issues. We all know what they are. It's becoming very clear. If you dare to speak prophetically, you can hope that people will be nice. But probably not. And what this text says is is that God sends us out into the world to be prophetic, to have a prophetic ministry, to speak the truth. And what he would have us see is that we have to keep going until there's nothing left but a burning stump. That even if people keep jumping when we ask them not to, we have to keep going or else we jump. Keep going until there's nothing but a burning stump left because the promise of the Bible, the promise of the book of Isaiah is that when you look around and all you see, down there at the very last part of this passage, when all you see is a smoldering stump, that doesn't mean you failed. It doesn't mean the end has finally come. In reality, it's just the beginning of God's work of redemption. Listen to Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we need your help. We need your grace. We need you to come and meet with us the way you did with this man here and all of the men, the holy men of ages past who met with you in the scriptures. Come and terrify us, we pray. As strange as that sounds to say, come and Comfort us with your mercy and your forgiveness and your grace. Come and commission us that we might be full of your spirit and courage to, because you're, you, it's undeniable that you are sending us to a ministry that in many ways will mirror the ministry that Isaiah that you had. You're sending us into a culture of people that are, have hard hearts and have no intention of listening. And it's so easy to be discouraged It's so easy to stop teaching and praying and reasoning and to start yelling and mocking and making fun. Please, Father, help us to not do that, but to to endure faithfully, full of courage in the work that you've called us to. Come, do these things that we might be your people, a people of your name who live for your glory and bear fruit that honors and magnifies you. It's our hope and our prayer. Come. Wake us up. Help us recover from our dull hearts. We beg you for mercy. We can't change ourselves, but you can change us. And so even as we sing now, come and do that work of grace in us, we pray.
And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you find yourself with a dull heart, and you would say to the Lord, wake me up and heal me, come to the King, seated high on His throne and exalted for mercy, knowing that in Jesus Christ, there is mercy for all who turn and come to Him. If your faith is not in the Lord Jesus, we invite you, come to Him, run to Him. He is willing and welcoming uh, to receive you. But if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then hear the promise of this benediction, that the one who, for many of us, was a terror, who became a father, now is the one who, as all good parents do, launches us out of the nest to send us into the world on mission uh, to go and proclaim the glories of the one who has called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. The benediction is the promise that as he sends you, he goes with you. And so, uh, receive the benediction. Uh, in all good faith and assurance. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.